Philippians chapter 2 this morning in our text of our study. Philippians chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. As we enter a new chapter, and, and Trav read this uh, chapter, and it's called the worship, or this, these first five verses, and it's called the worship this morning. They are the verses in your bulletin, the verses of the month. I would encourage you to get familiar with them, to think on them, and I, because they are a very important portion of this, of this book. And this portion begins with a therefore in verse 2, which links it to the previous passage, doesn't it? This is a, like somewhat of a summary statement, or in light of this statement, in the light of what we studied previously and what we've seen in this previous testimony of the Apostle Paul is his delight in the furtherance of the gospel. That was a primary concern. We saw his attitude in that this desire to see the gospel, the work of the gospel advanced. We saw this wonderful attitude in which he states, to me to live is Christ. In spite of the context in which he, which he then existed, in spite of being in prison, he recognized that that for to him to be, live as Christ, and his desire is that in his body Christ would be magnified, whether by life or by death. And on that basis, he then instructs the believers, you and I, to, be, to let our conduct to be worthy of the gospel. He, he challenges us in our lives. Does our lives complement the gospel of Christ and encourage people towards Christ or away from Christ? And then to be unified together in striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he challenges the church as individuals collectively together serving Christ to strive. That means to put effort and focus into advancing the faith of the gospel, knowing that we're called to suffer for his sake. All these were kind of highlights of the pre pre previous portion, the last half of chapter 1. And in, in light of that, and it's all gospel talk, isn't it? And Paul said, though, for to me to live as Christ, he recognized to live as Christ means to live, what, what, live out the mission Christ had for him, and, 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 and to challenge us to be involved and engage in that work of the gospel. And then he says, therefore, in light of these things, he brings us these, these five verses. And these are verses in regards to unity and service in this passage. And he may be going back to verse where these previous verses where he tells us to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he goes back to that gauntlet, as I said, he threw down, that challenge he throws out to us to strive together for the faith of the gospel, but to do so with one mind and one spirit. And then he comes to therefore, and he begins to talk about what it means to have that unity of purpose together. You know, the interesting thing about the book of Philippians, it is often a book of joy when we think about reading the book of Philippians, but it is also very much dominated by the, by this, by the teaching in regards to service. It's a book of service, of serving Christ. And chapter 2 is maybe the centerpiece of that chapter, and it revolves around Jesus Christ. Verse 5 and onwards, so it says, Let this mind be in you, who is also in Christ Jesus. And it, it revolves around his service and his willingness to humble himself and become a servant in order to meet our needs, in order to go to the cross for you and I. And so it's interesting that you have a book of joy and a book of service in the, in the same four chapters. And because we normally as human beings don't see those things going together. Service and joy don't normally go together. We're joyful when the service is done generally and from a human experience. But here the Bible puts them in the same book. That's where joy comes from, the sacrifice of service. And in order to accomplish that, he then, I think, reaches back to verse 27 and his challenge to strive together for the face of the gospel to this idea of having one mind and one spirit. 
And then he talks about unity and service in these next four verses, linking back then to the mind of Christ. And that's the key to fulfilling these things, isn't it? But it's only through Christ, only when we have his mind, only when we walk in his power, that can we accomplish these things. Because these are supernatural things. These aren't normal things that exist in human experience. These are things that exist in the fellowship of the saints. And you might say this. This isn't a legalistic list. This is the expression of having the mind of Christ. But on the other side of the coin, if these things don't exist in, in our experience as a church or in my life as a contributor to the life of the church, then we need to sit, step back and take notice, take personal inventory, and get on our knees before God. Is, is it me that's disrupting the fellowship of the saints and the, and the work of the ministry? Am I contributing as God would have me to do? Because this is the normal expression of the mind of Christ, the spirit-led life in the, in, the, in, in the life of the believers. And so verse 4, or excuse me, verse 1 starts with four conditional um, comments. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, number one. Second thing, if there's any comfort of, of love, Thirdly, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Fourthly, if there's any affection and mercy. And we know in, in the original Greek, in the, when, the, when the word if is used, it actually has seven different classes of condition. And I'm not going to go through those all this morning. But the obvious thing in this passage is this is the class of if and there is. He could be saying since there is these things in Christ. But maybe he put it in this way instead of saying since, like I might want to say or you might want to say, he may be put it this way because these aren't always true in our experience as Christians, in our churches, in our family lives as believers. These aren't always true, but he's saying if and there is. These things are true. These are senses. These aren't questions of uncertainty. These are statements of reality, of certainty. These are things that are true of life in Christ. These are the normal expression of verse 5, the mind of Christ. Consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and mercy. And you know, you could spend a lot of time in each one of these, couldn't you? In 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 mining out the riches behind these statements. The first thing that is expressed as the, as the expression of the Christ life within is the is there any consolation in Christ? The word consolation means a calling to one side, according to the vines. Hence, either an exhortation or a consolation or a comfort. Some of your versions use the word comfort in this place. And maybe that's because it comes from the same root word as the word comforter. It's the same word. Parakletos. Is, is a same, it's, it comes from the same root word as, as the comforter, the paraclete, the one who's called alongside to help. And so this is the same word. And he's, and he's asking, he's, he's saying here, is that comfort or encouragement, if you prefer, comfort comes from Christ through the lives of believers. Is there any comfort in Christ? Now, what he might saying on one hand is that the Lord Jesus does comfort his own. And that's a joy to remember because we too often look at God as someone who's out to get us, get even with us, to take out vengeance on us when we realize that's his children. He loves us as the Father loves his children. And, and in our lives, he seeks to bring comfort. There's comfort in Christ in our relationship. We could start singing Just As I Am if you want, Gavin. Are you coming forward before we even start? <laughs> oh, interesting. I was going to wait and see if he'd come up here and kneel, but <laughs> I think I scared him. 
there's comfort in Christ. He comforts his own when we're cast down, when we're troubled. And that's why when, we're, when we are going through our difficulties and trials and struggles and even our failures, he's there to comfort us and to lift us up, not to tear us down. And so Jesus comforts his own, but he also comforts them through his people, through the lives of his own. And that's, what, that's this context here. Is there any comfort in Christ? There should be comfort. If there's comfort in Christ, there should be the same kind of comfort expressed to fellow believers in our lives. And so often we tear down rather than build up. And that's the, that's the concept Paul's addressing here. The next thing he says, if any comfort of love. Well, there's our word comfort again. In fact, some versions use the word consolation. So flip, flop them whichever way you want. You find the same word in both passages. They have the same root. The difference being here is in the first sense, the first mention, the emphasis is on the comfort itself that comes from Christ. God lifts up. He comforts. He encourages when he, when he deals with his struggling and hurting children. And that's the emphasis in the first part. In the second part, the emphasis is on, on the instrument being used, on the motivation behind, the comfort of love. The idea is it's love that reaches out to offer consolation and comfort. And the emphasis in the second part is, yes, there's consolation in Christ. He is a God of all comfort. The second thing is there's also comfort in love. Love is what comforts us. The know we're loved unconditionally. And God accepts us in Christ because we are in him and he loves us in spite of ourselves. And therefore, this love, this kind of love should be expressed in, in care and concern in the family of the saints. It is a normal expression of Christ. That should, thus, it should be normal in our lives. This should, these two things should not be the exception. You know, we might read these verses and say, boy, where do I find a church like this? Because a lot of churches aren't like this. But when we're walking with Christ, it can be like this. That's why this is a book of joy. This is the joy of experiencing Christ-like reality in our lives. And that's, and that's what's important here to realize. This is real, Christian, real Christianity, and it gets down to real problems, things that exist in our families, when believers fail among us, when, be when believers offend, us, offend among us, and so on. It, it, the response here is the comfort of love to try to encourage and restore and lift up, whatever the need might be. And so this kind of loving concern might motivate us to have others best in mind. And we're going to see that here in these verses as we get to it, where it says here to, to prefer others better than ourselves. And that's what love does. It causes us to get beyond our own ego, our own, our own person, and it puts the concern upon the other. And we pray. Sometimes it motivates us to set aside our plans and make a visit, to reach out in some way. And that's something that we all could have more of, learn more of, isn't it? To reach out to those who are hurting and needy. And it's comforting. It's consoling to have a believer step into the room when you're hurting or when you're struggling or when you're at your wit's ends, when you're overwhelmed. It's comforting. And I believe God who is the, is, who directs the church, Jesus who directs the church, he's the head of the church, will send the, a believer our way, the right person to step into our lives if we're willing to go. And if he won't use me, he'll use the person next to me or the next because that's how Jesus expresses love. 
That's how he brings comfort and consolation is when you and I take, are willing to take time out from our busy schedules and reach out to people. You know, I know of people that have lost loved ones and, and during the lengthy sicknesses have never had a single person from the local church stop and visit. Not one. Now, Sundays it might be because people are intimidated. Well, what do I say? It's the point. You don't have to say anything. Just go hold their hand. That's all you have to do. Put your arm around them. That's how Jesus expresses love through his children. And that should be the normal expression of the one living in Christ. That's reality. See, the love of Christ pushes us beyond our comfort zone. Puts us beyond our own objectives and, and, and ambitions and needs, and we serve others instead and bring them support in some way, shape, or form. So that bringing that kind of comfort to those hurtings is normal. It's reflected in shoe leather, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's reaching back. He say, okay, Paul says, Paul says, I told you in verse 27 to strive together for the faith of the gospel, to do it in one spirit and in one mind, to do it together in, in ministering he says, but you also have to minister to one another. That's where, that's where service begins, doesn't it? Within the family. The third thing he says here, if there's any if and there is, or since there is, fellowship in the Spirit, or of the Spirit. Some versions put the emphasis with the Spirit. Some put it on the fellowship of the Spirit, as it says here in the New King James. Either way you want to put it, the fellowship of the church, the, com the community of the church, the, the engagement of the church is, ought to be in the spirit. We, are, we ought to be spirit-led people. That's what the gathering of this fellowship of the saints is. We come together to worship because the spirit of God placed upon our heart a, a hunger to know God's word, a desire to worship him with fellow believers, and he leads us together, and then we come together to be equipped together, to worship together, and to serve together because the Spirit of God is making us Christ-like, is leading us in Christ-like living, is leading us, lead, leading us in Christ-focused ministry. It's of the Spirit. That's our basis of unity. The oil mentioned in Psalm 133 represents this Holy Spirit. And that was what's delightful. It, 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 it ran down the beard of Aaron, the, the, the high priest of the church. It indicates the unity of the spirit that we can enjoy together. And that distinguishes it from any other basis of fellowship because the spirit unites us together in Christ and around Christ, producing a community characterized by the loving and compassion and the service of Christ. You know, it's not our commonalities that unite us. It's not because we live in a community, a certain community. It's not because we have the same hobbies. And the same, in, or the same occupations. And though that might sometimes occupy our conversations, what should be behind those conversations and un undergirding those conversations is a love for Christ. And that's why the church, when we come together, our fellowship is around him. And that's why it's delightful when another believer says, hey, you know, I learned something this morning, or look what God showed me this week, or, you know, or whatever the case is. And isn't, this, isn't it great what God has for us? And, you know, a pastor's greatest desire when he teaches the word of God, is first of all to be the transparent parent so people see Christ and not the preacher. But what, they, what the preacher wants them to see is the delight, delightful person of Christ in the word of God. These are delightful things. These are things that I could never experience on my own. I'm never going to find them in the deer camp. I'm never going to find them in the Elks Club. I'm never going to find them in the, in the football stadium. I'm not going to find these things. You find, you find some fellowships, but not this kind of fellowship. Not one that is intrinsic and real and internal. 
that produces that, that love of Christ, love for Christ, and the love of Christ together. And so we enjoy, we enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit when we submit to his teaching and his work of making us Christ-like, leading us in our lives and producing this, this fruit of the Spirit and so on. All wonderful privileges. And Paul says there is fellowship in the Spirit. And he says this is important to our striving together for the faith of the gospel. Are we, are we one in, in these areas? Are these, are these what unite us together as one body, one local body serving Christ together? Fourth thing he mentions here is any affection and mercy. The word affection in the old King James was translated bowels. If you look up the Greek, language, Greek word, that's what it meant. Because back in the culture of the day, people thought that the deepest passions came from the bowels. You know, that's where, where heartache came from. And maybe in their day it was bowel ache. When someone's heart was broken, their bowels were broken kind of thing. That's kind of odd. I'll have to admit, I've never told my wife that I love you with all my bowels. <laughs> but that's the same, same idea. That's, that's, that's what the, so it's re representing that deep, heartfelt compassion for one another. And that's a compassion only Christ can produce because it's not natural. Usually we love those who love us, the Bible says. That's normal. What a big deal if you love those who love you. What a big deal. When you love your enemies. When you love those who aren't quite so appealing to you. Who, don't, uh, who may not be, be naturally acceptable to you or comfortable. He says that's, uh, then, then it's the love of Christ. Well, along with that affection, and you probably never think of it when you walk in the doors of a church that we have a, that, that I like these people. I love these people. There's an affection for these people because they're my family. And yes, they're annoying at times because family, families are often annoying to each other. There we have those moments. It's not without, without our roadblocks and, and uh, speed bumps in life. But because we are one in Christ, there's an affection for those who know Christ. And I think it's delightful when, and, and I already, uh, like even in my family, I like to do this, but when I travel, I, I love popping into some church that I look at. I might look at their doctrinal statement or something, and I just like to pop in. And, you know, when you walk in, there's a natural affection. Even if you don't know them. Because if they're believers, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the people I'm going to spend eternity with. Because there's a natural affection that exists, produced by the Spirit of God, because it's in Christ. It's normal, isn't it? Well, along with that, we find affections and mercy. The word mercy is often used in conjunction with this in, 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 in the Word of God. And we think of mercies of, of being defined technically as not getting what we deserve. God is, God's mercies are new every morning, and boy, I am thankful for that. I didn't get what I deserved for how I acted yesterday. And so his mercies are new every morning. And when we come before God in, in repentance and confession and make things right, God just loves us because he chose to love us, not because we deserve it. His mercies are new every morning. They're from everlasting to everlasting. If we got what we deserved, well, none of us would be here, would we? But God's mercies is from everlasting to everlasting. And that mercy should exist in the church. That kind of unconditional forgiveness, that extension of grace and understanding to one another 
giving each other room to fail and, and uh, giving each other the opportunity to, to, to restore if there's an offense. Mercies should characterize the affection of the saints. But some versions also translate this word, and some of your versions may have this, as compassion, affection and compassion. I think one version used the word sympathy. Sympathy. Is there a concern? We have to remember that if we're not being directed by divine love, we're probably full of self-love. It's kind of an either-or in our Christian life. We either walk in the flesh, we walk in the spirit. The, spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love. The, the, the characteristics of, self, of the flesh is self, self-love. And when we're operating in that realm, then we, are, we become very critical, judgmental, and um, unmerciful, don't we? That's just the nature of the flesh. That's how we are normally. And that's why in Christ, he produces in us a sympathy for a person because the love of Christ focuses our concern on others, not ourselves. And even if somebody offended me, there's still a concern that there needs to be unity in the body. There needs to be harmony. If someone's offended me, I don't care how many years ago or generations ago it was. If there's a wedge, there's a problem. And the problems conti will continue to exist as long as I defend my turf. It will continue to exist. Self-love. But when we elevate the testimony of Christ, the fellowship of the saints, the work of Christ above what I think I have rights to, then all, then all, those, hurt, then all those bitterness, deep-seated bitterness and hurts, dissipate. And it's not important. And all those things I was all worked up about and I've been, we've been bitter about for so many years isn't important. In fact, I'm concerned that the person is the object of my wrath isn't in harmony with Christ or with the body or with the fellowship of the saints. That's, that's, that's normal. Those things aren't important. What are they going to matter in eternity? And so our love turns from self to others. And we can begin to have sympathy, compassion, concern. How can we lift them up instead of beat them down? And I've seen it over and over again when a Christian goes through some type of failure in a church that others dissect them, tear them to pieces in the church. And we get to a point where we think that's just kind of normal. That's the way it is. It's, it's normal for the flesh. That is correct statement. But it is not normal in the spirit. It is not the love of God. Instead, we seek to, and though, the, the, though this, these answers might be simplistic and problems are very complex, God offers us simple answers to complex problems. So we can get through it. Get beyond it. So we can enjoy a harmony and a unity and a, and a fellowship of the saints in the church that is characterized by affection and mercy and concern for one another. You could paraphrase this statement, affection and mercy, as having a heart of compassion. If I was going to write a paraphrase, and I don't condone, condone paraphrases, but if I was going to write one in this verse, that's how I would write it, a heart of compassion. 
That's the mind of Christ. So he has that towards us. How many times have I stepped on the cross of Christ? How many times have I sinned and offended my Savior? Yet his mercy, his compassion, they're, they're new every morning. They can be rejoiced in and refreshing, and that's the kind of compassion, the sympathy, the concern that lifts others up in our lives. You know, maybe as well illustrated in the marriage relationship, and I've always said that because just because one spouse puts on the boxing gloves doesn't mean the other spouse has to. One spouse is crabby. The other one doesn't have to respond in kind. Because the love of Christ places our love not on self-defense, but on others' condition. And instead you try to lift <coughs> them up. And point them to Christ. So that could be true harmony not upon finding some middle ground of compromise, but upon a grace that exists in Christ Jesus. There are a few times in my ministry when I've had to approach people that were overwhelmed with anger and bitterness, and, and through a course of time, in a few cases at least, they came to realizing that uh, they were in the wrong, at least for their response and as they began to look to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you have me to do in this, in this situation? All of a sudden, all those important things melted away. And, they, and, they, and I've heard that it seems like in all those cases, they come to the point where they say, well, I guess it wasn't that important. Well, that's an eternal perspective. That's where God would have us to get, isn't it? What is important is the fellowship of the saints being characterized by this, by this kind of compassion. All these things here are mentioned from us are from Christ. Because verse 5 says, that pivotal verse in this passage, let this mind be in you. Therefore, points back to the context of furthering the gospel, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 5 gives us the, the how-to, so to speak. We can enjoy these, these dynamics that are mentioned in these verses. These, not if and they are true, these are things that are real and true qualities of life in Christ. If there's a question, do they exist in my life or in my church. Because the church is not an organization, which always has conflict, it is an organism demonstrating the life of Christ. You know, 1 Corinthians 1, we referred to that recently, I think last week I actually referred to it, but I mentioned the fact that, that in that chapter, as we start thinking about our communion service today, in that chapter of 1 Corinthians 1, which later is addressed in 1 Corinthians 11 in regards to communion service, there was conflict, there was division, wasn't there? And then he discusses in that, ch in that chapter two ways to live in the life of a church. You can live in God's wisdom, which is addressed here, or you can live in the ugliness of the flesh. And too many churches have the reputation that Corinth had. A church in conflict, a church in division, a church that was carnal or fleshly or worldly-minded, a church that was ineffective for Christ, a church that was even bringing great, great disgrace to the Lord's table because they were walking in, in their own wisdom, characterized by the ugliness of the flesh, by people who are more interested in themselves and advancing their own cause, their own agenda, having things their way. And though maybe at times well-meaning, it was destructive to the cause of Christ. And what God wants believers to do is to get from 1 Corinthians to 
Philippians chapter 2. That's what God wants. Wants churches that have that kind of reputation. And sometimes that reputation ex extends to the community where people see that church and think, oh, they're always fighting over there or whatever. They want to get it to Philippians chapter 2. That's God's desire. And, and God wants believers to get to the point of the kind of reality in their experience that going to church isn't just going to church. It is the fellowship and the harmony and the unity of, of life and purpose that is mentioned here because that's the reality that is in Christ. And there is great joy in a church family whose members are walking together in the love of Christ. He then turns to the next logical thing. If these things are true, if this kind of affection and comfort and are the climate of your church, then he turns from the attitude of love to the, to the, uh, to the aspect of unity. Verse 2 says, Then fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same, being of one accord, of one mind. And here once again we have these four aspects of unity, four elements to unity. He says to be like-minded. And he's talking there about the basis of thought. He's not talking about being identical, thinking all exactly the same. We're individuals, and God created us that way. But we have the same basic principles in life, the same basic perspective towards life. We see life through the lens of Scripture, a biblical worldview, if you mind, and that's what we come here for. We should have the same type of value system in life as, as each other because uh, the basis of our values, our perspectives, is the Word of God is the mind of Christ, and it should unify us in that way. That is the basis of unity. That's what brings us together, is, is, is learning about Jesus Christ. He then says, have the same love. The same love. I don't know if he's referring directly to the same kind of love, the love of Christ, as, a control, as, as contrasting to the love of self. But when we think about love in the scriptures, we know we're told to love the Lord God with all our heart. We're to love others as ourselves. But we're also to love the things that God loves. And maybe that's, that's what he's referring to here. The loving, the same, having that same love. Maybe experiencing that love amongst each other, but also loving the things that God loves in life. It may also refer to our motivation in life. But it's a love that unites us. It's a love of Christ that sets us on the same road of purpose and establishes a willingness to live out that, that ministry, that life, that ministry, and that service in our lives. And in this context of unity of service in these four verses, it is definitely a reference to the love of the assembly that motivates us to serve together, the love of Christ. Because the love of Christ should infiltrate, dominate, and permeate the assemblies of the saints. And that's what the God, Jesus said when he said we're going to be known by our love. So we're to have the same love. We're to love Christ, love the things of Christ, the purposes of Christ. That's what unites us together. And we're also to have being of one accord. It's interesting, and some versions mention this in the Greek interlinear, it defines this as joined in soul, to be of one accord. Joined in soul. Interesting way to put it. New American Standard Bible uses the, the term united in spirit. And one other version that is a little more dynamic Holman says, sharing the same feelings. I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it. Well, we're told here back in verse 27, 
once again, to have the same mind. He might be feeding off of that. But there ought to express that oneness that of, of purpose that is intrinsic. I think that's what he's saying. Let the word of God, the love of Christ, the mind of Christ grip us. Be like-minded. Have the mind of Christ as your basis. Have the same love of Christ and have it internally. Let it become part of you. Let the Spirit of God engrave it on your heart to form Christ in us. And that should be the oneness. It's intrinsic. We're one, we're one in soul together. And that's what it means to be a, a Christian family. Next thing he says, last thing he says here in regards to enjoying this, uh, this fellowship of the saints in a unified way is to be of one mind. Now the word mind is the same word as, as the first mention again in this verse. In the first mention, it's speaking about the broad basis of thought, the foundation of thought, the word of God. But here, it's referring to singleness of thought. Some versions put it that way, singleness of purpose, having the same purpose having the same objective. And we know what, what our objective is as God's children. We're to glorify God in following Christ. Simple, isn't it? In a, in a, in a, in a simple one-sentence definition. And following Christ means honoring him and, and cooperating with him in his desire to further the gospel, to reach people for Christ. Some versions translate that last phrase, intent on one purpose. There's that idea of being focused on one purpose. And so we have the same foundation. We were to be like-minded. We're to have the same perspectives and values towards life. We're to have the same love. We're to love what God loves and value what he values in life. We're to be of, of one cord where we are to be united in spirit together and heart together. And we are to, to be intent on one purpose, intent and focused. And that should be that intensity should dominate our assembly, the assembly of the saints together. And that is joyful. Fulfill, fulfill my joy, he says. And I rejoice, Paul says, when I see a church that sees the reality of Christ in this way, that have the, the concept, the dynamics of verse 2 that are true. There's, con there's consolation in Christ. There's comfort from love. There's fellowship together in the spirit is effect these are intimate these are intimate words aren't they they're very real words and they have some very practical implications on how we live our lives don't they this is the reality of christ being in control in our lives and affecting how we live and folks i think that's a difference between the church in corinth and the church in philippi is that they were experiencing the reality of christ they were applying the word of god to the dynamics of their lives and, and making decisions based upon thus saith the Lord and concerned about the things of Christ over the things of self. And as we, and then when we set today, we celebrate the communion service. And if you want to turn back over towards 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment, it's only respectful and normal for us to celebrate the, the, the death of Christ for us, the, the, the person who, who gave himself for us as described later here in Philippians 2 to respect his mind, his ways, his desire, his plan, his design for the church in these things. In the church of Corinth, Corinth I just want you to notice as we, as we turn to the communion service in verse 17, he actually introduces this, this uh, instruction to communion with a, with a critique of their church. And he summarizes what's going on in the church. And why it was bringing disgrace to the gospel of Christ. 
They were Christians going to church. They're meeting on Sundays. But he says in verse 17, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, you've been better off staying home. And that's what, that's what God feels about the church. If these realities aren't there, shut the doors. No, they're never there 100% all the time. Are they because we're growing in these things? Philippians 1.6, God's begun this work in us and he will complete it in the day of Christ. So we're a work in progress. But if these things aren't being done in a church, he says, you're coming together for the worst, so why bother? For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. It's the first thing he identifies here. There's divisions among you. He calls them factions in verse 19. He says, there are divisions among you and I partly believe it. He says, I, you know, I know you don't believe everything you hear. But I, from their reputation, he believes there was divisions. And they were, they were seeking to come together to worship with conflict in the church, with divisions in the church, factions in their lives. And Paul said, why are you even bothering? You're coming together for the worse. And then he says, well, first of all, excuse me, verse 19, he says, for there also must be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Paul recognized the divine purpose in allowing conflict to come into the church because those who are biblical, those who are right, will shine. He says it reveals those who are seeking God's will first because conflicts happen, divisions occur, but how do we deal with it as individuals and as an assembly? And so problems make the right shine. In verse 20, he says, the next thing he mentions, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You can call it what you want, but it's not the Lord's Supper, he's saying. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, another is drunk. He says, you're just, you know, obviously people are taking their, their favorite hot dish or whatever they made for the Lord's Supper, and they um, went and sat in a corner by themselves and ate it and didn't share. And those who did, weren't able to bring that, that Sunday went hungry. And he said, how pathetic. Along that, they had a party atmosphere. Another is drunken, which means it was a party atmosphere rather than a worship and fellowship atmosphere. And um, that's sad. Now, this seems extreme to us. We can't imagine this in a church. Maybe the division side of it, but it had gotten so bad that they wouldn't even fellowship with, with certain members of the church, nor did they share this is what God, what God means when, he, when we read our communion passage and he, sp he speaks of, um, in verse 27, of eating in an unworthy manner. Because these things bring dis disgrace to the, to the cross of Christ. However, when God's wisdom prevails, when God's instructions are followed, the, the fellowship around the Lord's table can be sweet. Wonderful. It's what unites us. We're all sinners that contributed to the cross of Christ, aren't we? He took our sins. And it's a wonderful celebration of what the Lord Jesus has done from us, for us, excuse me. And, and that's why though Paul focused on their problems, he brought them a right perspective of how to rightly serve the Lord. Because that's what this communion table pictures. It really pictures our service towards Christ. And that's what he tells us to remember him, to declare him, and then to examine ourselves when we eat the bread or drink this cup because we don't want to do it in an unworthy manner, whether as a church or as an individual contributing to the church because ultimately our desire 
is that God is glorified. That's our purpose. God is glorified. And when God is glorified in worship, the worshipers experience the joy and oneness in Christ, and they are encouraged together. You know, it's interesting, you look back to the Jesus when he instituted the Lord's Supper, that there seems to be two things that occurred in the upper room before he instituted the Lord's Supper. In John 13, it was foot washing. That came first. And I don't know if that's significant. I kind of want to think it is. But foot washing represents, first of all, cleansing from the defilement of sin. That has to do with confession of sin. There's one, that's one of the analogies, one of the lessons we draw from that, from that um, foot washing incident, that we need to be cleansed from daily defilement. We need to have our sins confessed. And that's what 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, to examine ourselves, to make sure our sins are confessed. And Jesus went through that with the disciples before. Another thing he, that represents is service. Is he showed, he showed them what a servant looked like because the God of the universe washed dirty feet. And he shows us what it means to serve one another, to help, help have an effect of cleansing upon one another. That's what that pictures, doesn't it? Another thing that happened, and some say it happened after, but two, chap, two books, Matthew and Mark, indicate that uh, Judas was departed before the institution. The one book that, that puts it in reverse order is the book of Luke. Many believe Luke was just stating facts. He was more of an encyclopedian than he was a historian in a sense. And he wasn't worried about chronology, but about details. Where Matthew and Mark indicate that when Jesus basically told Judas to do what you do quickly, as it says in John 13, that occurred. And so maybe Jesus was weeding out the one whose heart was not with them. Because it's not for unbelievers. It's for believers to joyously celebrate their Lord together. And then Jesus instituted the Lord's table, and then they sang a hymn together after it was done. It's a celebration, isn't it? It's a celebration that must be done in great, in great respect. And so this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's table together, we are going to take that moment for, for a silent prayer to allow us to examine our hearts to make things right with our God so we can celebrate in a way that truly all fulfills our purpose in the fellowship of the saints to uplift and glorify our God together. So let's take a moment for silent prayer and then I'll pray and we'll continue.